Well, good evening, my Springfield Church of Christ Wednesday night Bible study group. Uh, it is good to be back with you this evening. Of course, we finished our study in Romans last week, and we're going to get into the book of Jude tonight. But before we do, uh, we want to spend a little bit of time in prayer. Uh, of course, the thing that is on our hearts right now, as always, is continuing to be the uh, coronavirus pandemic and what it is doing around the world. Uh, we need to be in prayer for our president. I understand from today's news that he was going to be meeting with some coronavirus survivors uh, at the White House and then speaking with uh, business executives about reopening different industries and, and portions of even the government. So we want to pray for wisdom there uh, on his part. Then as we are thinking about the country and really the world and what's been going on, uh, it's kind of overshadowed the news of what's happened in Texas and Mississippi and Louisiana with the tornadoes that have just devastated a lot of the region down there. In fact, 30 plus people uh, lost their lives in those recent storms. And uh, so even while we're watching Easter cookouts broken up because of stay-at-home orders that were violated or uh, even the, the pastor in Virginia who said God is larger than this virus who ended up contracting it himself and dying. Uh, there is just so much confusion going on right now uh, that we just need to continue to offer our country into to God's hands. And so as we begin, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, from the top down, we need you. Uh, we need your healing hand of strength. We need your healing hand of glory to be that which is working in the world today and in our lives. Uh, we thank you for the health that we have. Father, I realize that our church family has a lot of health concerns going on, and that almost takes a back seat uh, to all that has been going on as well in the news and the fact that we're just not together to share the way that we, we used to. But Father, I just pray for my, my Christian family that they find uh, rest in you, that their soul finds not only the salvation that comes from you, but Father, they find that you really are their rock and their salvation. And that as much as this world trembles at the news of viruses and weather uh, impacts, that Lord, they'll never really be shaken in their soul because you are their fortress. Uh, Lord, I pray for the temptations that are just battling them right now. I pray for the assaults that uh, believers are under, even in this time, of answering the question of where is your God uh, during all of this. Uh, Father, they think of us as, as people who crumble easily, but they don't know us well, and they certainly don't know you well, because we don't have a, a lack of strength, a lack of hope. We don't have a lack of uh, just the, the fortification of backbone and heart that comes from you. And so we just want to, to say, Lord, we trust in you. Help us in the times that our trust is, is shorter than it should be, because we want to trust you at all times. We want to be your people. Uh, we want to pour out every bit of our hearts before you, because God, you are uh, our hiding place. You are our, our refuge. And Lord, we will look to you for the things that we need. Uh, we understand that there are ways to go about things in this world that just aren't, uh, they're not credible, they're not done with integrity, 
And Father, in the end, they would just eat away at the character you created within us. And so we want to rely upon you because one thing that we're sure of is that all power belongs to you. And that with you, Lord, uh, there is unfailing love. With you, there is reward for everyone according to what they've done. And Father, with you, there's, there's great hope. And so I pray for my family today as we get back into your word uh, in that, that little book of Jude that, Father, you'll guide us in wisdom and direction as well. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you're looking for that little book before Revelation, uh, the book of Jude, uh, I, I wonder what is your attitude to a fight? Uh, what goes through your mind when you watch the news of U.S. forces uh, that are in seven conflicts around the world right now uh, in Afghanistan, where we are continuing a 16-year-long battle against the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, Al-Qaeda, uh, and the Islamic State. We are in battle in Somalia, where U.S. has, has doubled its use of airstrikes against Al-Qaeda, uh, against their offshoot Al-Shabaab since 2017. In fact, we just had a number of servicemen that were killed in, in Somalia. Uh, also, we were at battle in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Libya and Niger in Africa. Again, and in Niger, we've seen deaths happen there as well. Uh, you add to those seven conflicts the invisible enemy, as it's being called, of COVID-19. That makes eight conflicts we're involved in. Uh, using military resources. So what goes through your mind? And what is your attitude towards those fights? Or what goes through your mind when it's you who's faced with a possible fight? Uh, with debt collectors? With insurance companies, maybe? Uh, maybe it's fighting over some consumer right that you have? Or what are the big three that couples fight over the most? Maybe you're in some battles over disciplining your children whether they are three years old or 30 years old, <laughs> uh, or sex or finances, the big three in marriage. I guess there's two main questions that we should ask about a possible fight. Uh, number one, am I right to fight? And number two, is it worth it? And I've heard Christian leaders say that we should fight like you're right and listen like you're wrong. And that's, that's not bad advice. But in our Wednesday night Bible study, which seems like months ago, we were together now, uh, we started, uh, actually it was on Sunday evening, that we started the little book of Jude, which is a call to fight. And we know that as believers in Christ, we do fight. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, but on the contrary, they've got divine power to demolish strongholds. 1 Timothy 1.18 says that we are to fight the battle well. First uh, Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, even the great apostle Paul would say at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.7, I, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Uh, we are expected to fight for our faith. Uh, we don't have time tonight really to go through Ephesians 6 and the armor of God there, but uh, can we just agree that if God is providing us with armor that we are in a conflict? And uh, I just want to review, uh, do a reboot on Jude to kind of catch everyone up to speed uh, since it's been a little while since, since we met. And I just want to recap 
in Jude verse 3 what it says there. Uh, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, Contend is the fight word. They used it about gladiators going head-to-head in combat. And so Jude is saying, although in verse 3, I'd rather write positively about the Christian faith, I felt I had to write and urge you to, to fight for it. And if you wonder why he, he's giving that call, verse 4 gives the reason. Because there's certain men whose condemnation that was written about long ago that have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And if you read on, you'll find these, un, the, these certain men, they were teachers in the church. That they rejected the authority of God's word in the Bible and that they were into uh, and encouraged others to be involved in sexual immorality. Which makes verse 3 uh, surprising, doesn't it? If these certain men were so obvious as false teachers, then why is this church not already doing anything about them? Why did they need to be told to fight? Well, it seems maybe they're uncertain about those two main questions. Am I right to fight? And is it worth it? You'll never get engaged in any fight that you don't feel is worth it. And whenever Christians are uncertain about that, they won't fight false teachers. Sometimes we're not certain we're right. After all, I mean, you hear it, you hear it said, different people, they interpret the Bible differently, don't they? And, and we're not into fighting because it's, it's just not worth it. It, it. Won't it spoil our unity? Won't it affect our witness? Isn't fighting in the church the worst possible scenario? And Jude 15, or 5 through 16 is really a section that's written to answer those kind of questions and uncertainties. Verses 5 through 10 will answer the question, is it right to fight? And the answer is going to be, yeah, because we know what God's judgment on these teachers really is. And verse 11 through 16 will answer the question, is it worth it? And, and just spoiler alert again, the answer is yes, because we know the harm that people like this are really doing. And those are really my only two headings for us tonight. Uh, we know what God's judgment on these teachers really is. And we know what harm they really are doing. So let's just go back now and let's just look and and first see, we know what God's judgment on these teachers really is. Uh, I want to look with you in verse, starting in verse 5. Verse 5 begins, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. And later he destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, These ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him 
for slander. But he said, The Lord rebuke thee. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Now that's a hefty amount of teaching right there from Jude. And, and the first reason we don't fight false teachers is sometimes we're not sure we're right. They try to sell us a different interpretation of the Bible, and we begin to doubt our own judgment. And even once we're sure we've got the Bible right, we still don't want to sound judgmental, right? So we think the right thing, but we stay quiet. It's, it's right not to set ourselves up as judges. I agree with that because God alone is the judge. Uh, if you don't believe me, just look ahead to Rome, uh, Revelation 20, verse 12. Uh, John would say there, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. I don't have access to those books. That is not a library anybody on this earth has access to. Only Christ and God have that access. And it's wrong to judge somebody else's eternal salvation or damnation. But it's wrong not to make any judgments. Because the truth is, God has made his judgments clear in the Bible, and we are just simply to follow them. You know, I think sometimes as you look at the, the, the way false teachers are, uh, one reason you could spot them, and I'll give you a few of these, but one is that they always use a different source. False teachers use a different source. Where does the message come from? Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. He says the false teachers that they exploit you with stories they've made up. So the true teacher sources what he says from the word of God. The false teacher relies on his own authority, makes up his own message. And look again at verse 4. Note, the very first thing Jude says about these false teachers is that their condemnation was written about a long time ago. God's judgment about them, in other words, has already been shown perfectly clear. We're not being judgmental. Rather, we're expressing what God has already given judgment on. It's there in the Old Testament. And please remember for Jude, as he's writing the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, the whole Bible for him wasn't written as we have it. You know, we have the Bible of equal parts, Old Testament and New Testament. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New. But for Jude, the Bible equaled just the 39 books of the Old Testament. He didn't have the published New Testament already. So where in the Old Testament, where in the Scriptures, do you find God's judgment on the teaching, the attitude, and the lifestyle of these teachers? Verse 5 begins with, with the first example. Uh, you already know about this, but I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of where? Out of Egypt. But he later destroyed those who did not believe. Check one. Number two, the angels didn't keep their positions and abandoned their home. These he's kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Check two. Uh, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tells that story. Check Three, he, Jude takes three examples from the Old Testament of God's judgment on certain groups of people. That first one refers back to Numbers chapter 14, if you want to go back and read. And, and that's where God's people were rescued from Egypt, but they don't believe his promise. 
that he's able to bring them into the promised land. They're afraid of the people that are living in the land of Canaan, and they refuse to go in and capture it with God leading the way. In other words, they rebel against God's word. And as a judgment, the whole generation dies outside of the promised land. Verse 6 refers to Genesis 6, where the angels rebel against the boundaries that God has set. And they come to our world uh, for sexual intercourse. Sometimes they look at that as a special race of individuals. And, and really, Genesis 6 is a whole nother study. But verse 7 goes on to say, in a similar way, it's another example of rebellion against God's boundaries, his fence line, his guardrails for sexuality, and it refers to Genesis 19, the whole instance of Sodom and Gomorrah, where two angels come to town to warn Lot that the cities are about to be destroyed, that he and his family are to pack up and get out before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And the men of that town uh, beat on Lot's door and they say, if you go back to Genesis 19.5, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Now, what point is Jude making? He's saying we should not be uncertain what God's attitude is towards those who reject his word and who rebel against his boundaries for sexuality, either heterosexuality or homosexuality. God has made his judgments perfectly clear. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by what the insurance companies today would call an act of God. And some of Jude's Jewish contemporaries wrote about the site still smoldering with volcanic activity in the New Testament times. They regarded it as a standing illustration of God's judgment. And verses 5 through 7, that's just three examples from the Old Testament. I mean, it is littered with acts of God in history, which make his judgments perfectly clear. And Jude says that those acts of God in history show us what God's attitude is to the same offenses at the end of history, on the day of judgment. That's the point of the end of verse 7. These things serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So in verses 5 through 7, Jude says, We know from the Bible what God's attitude is towards those who reject his word and reject his teaching on the gift of sexuality. And in verse 8, he applies that to problems in the church in his own day. In verse 8, you find it says, In the very same way, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and they slander celestial beings. These dreamers is referring back to the false teachers. Maybe because they claimed their teaching came by some direct revelation from God. Uh, maybe they feel that God came to them in a dream or in a vision or some ecstatic state. And he says, in the same way as those examples I just gave you, they pollute their own bodies. They're into immorality of all kinds. And in the very same way, they reject authority, God's authority. That is God's supreme authority to set the moral boundaries. We, we, we are so blessed in our lives as believers. We are blessed as Christians in the world today that we have a supreme authority to define what is right and what is wrong. And at the end of verse 8, it said, They slander celestial beings. Now, it's not immediately obvious what that means. And we're not going to go deeply into 
the whole story about Michael and in the body of Moses and Satan today. We are going to cover that. Uh, remember, we're just doing a reboot today to kind of catch everybody up with some of the main point of what Jude is addressing. But probably the celestial beings, they're the angels. Uh, they were involved in communicating the law to Moses. Uh, if you look at Galatians 3.19 or Hebrews 2.2, 2, and so to slander celestial beings is probably to do with their rejection of God's law. In verse 8, these church leaders, or, or teachers, excuse me, in Jude's day, like church teachers in our day, they're living their lives by their own set of rules. They're living sexually any way they want. They're immoral. They reject God's authority to define right and wrong. And they, they consider his revealed words either words for another time or simply rubbish for this generation. In verse 9, Jude gives another example from the Old Testament to strengthen the point he's just made. He says that these teachers actually set themselves up in the place of God. They reject uh, uh, God's judgments on right and wrong, and they live by their own. And verse 9 basically says, not even the archangels, you know, the, the closest servants to God, not even they would dare to make moral judgments on their own, but rather they humbly submit to God's judgments. And in verse 10, it says, these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, which is obviously God's word. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. So the only language they really understand is the language of their belly, is their language of desire. When you cease to be ruled by God's word, you become ruled by desires, whether they, they be desires for sex, for success, for money, for power, for pleasure, for relationships, for, for leisure, for working out or whatever, which ultimately dehumanizes people. And anytime you dehumanize the gift of God's creation of people in his image, then they become like unreasoning animals who live by instinct. That's why we come up with expressions like, you know, we're just part of the rat race or so-and-so. That's just a, a group of fat cats in Washington. We're saying that they're living by their desire, by their instinct for sex, success, money, power, and so on, rather than what God has to say. And what you see Jude doing uh, in verses 5 through 7 is saying, we know God's judgment from the past Bible history. In verses 8 through 10, we know these people today are doing the same things that God condemned then. So our conclusion ought to be, we know what God's judgment on these teachers today really is. We're not being judgmental. We're just taking our cue from a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who's revealed his constancy in the scriptures, and it's perfectly clear. Now, the second thing he's answering uh, or, or raising an issue to is not only did these false teachers come from a, a different source, they're preaching a different message. And you have to ask, what is the substance of their message? For the true teacher, it's obvious Jesus Christ is central. Uh, Peter would say in 1 Peter 1.3, we've got everything we need for life and godliness in him. Uh, for the false teacher, Jesus is always at the margins. 
it, it's always, look what I can heal. Look what I've been given the power to do. And it says uh, in the scriptures, they'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. The word that I catch there in that passage is secretly. And I, I believe that's 1 Peter 2.1, by the way. It, it's rare for somebody in the church to openly deny Jesus. Movement away from the centrality of Christ, that, that's more subtle. The, the false teacher will speak about how other people can help change your life. But if you listen carefully to what he's saying, you'll see Jesus Christ is not essential to his message. Rather, they just mention Christ, hoping that tagging him on will give power to their message. And from the church's earliest days, the church has been afflicted by the heretic in its various forms. That kind of an individual continues their evil work today, sometimes by contradicting the truth, sometimes by adding to it. He might reframe the doctrine of, of the Trinity, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like Arius did in the 3rd century, or like the Oneness Pentecostals do today. They might be like Marcus Borg or other prominent scholars that deny the virgin birth or, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They might be like the Jehovah's Witnesses that they alter God's finished word. Or like the Mormons, they might add to it another word of Jesus Christ. And always they boldly tamper with what Jude called in Jude 1.3, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Um, let me give you a recent example. Now, I'm, I'm not doing this to highlight one sin over the other. But I want you to understand that just recently here, uh, standing before other ministers at a city council meeting, quoting from the Bible and, and what the scripture's judgment was on homosexuality in the past, the effects on culture, the effects on civilization in the past, having other preachers say to me, where are you getting this? And, and having to defend God's word and saying, well, it's, it's right here in the scripture. You know, Old and New Testament, that no one who does this will inherit the kingdom of God. And being told, well, you're just being judgmental. Those words were written for another people and another time. That's not written to govern our lives today. And friends, if you throw out any part of the Bible, tell me how you know what other parts to keep. Now, again, I'm not doing that to highlight homosexual sin over heterosexual sin. They're both sin. They both remove sex from its God-given context of marriage and, and definement of pleasure, but they take it in different directions. I'm using it because it's a good example of what Jude is speaking about. The statement has just talked about how some Christians experience desires and, and refuse to act on them because they know what God's will is, and so they don't, and that's right. But then, then you can also listen to this. This was a uh, an article released by the Anglican Church, uh, and I quote, At the same time, there are others who are conscientiously convinced that this way of absence is not the best for them, that they've got more hope of growing in love for God and neighbor with the help of a loving and faithful homophile partnership, an intention lifelong where mutual self-giving includes the physical, a physical expression of their attachment, in responding to this conviction, it is more important to bear in mind the historic tension in Christian ethics thinking between the God-given moral order and the freedom we have 
as Christians. While insisting the conscience needs to be informed in light of that order, Christian tradition also contains an emphasis for respect on conscientious judgment and its freedom, where you have seriously weighed the issues involved. The homosexual is only one in such a range of cases. While unable, therefore, to commend the way of life just described as a faithful reflection of God's purpose in creation, we do not reject those who sincerely believe it is God's call for them to be homosexual, and we stand alongside them in the fellowship of the church, all alike dependent on the undeserved grace of God. Well, well let me just say, I agree with the very last statement, that we do all stand alongside dependent on the undeserved grace of God. But that's the plausible part for me where it ends. When you talk about the grace of God, it's deeper than we will ever know. And it sounds so right that the Anglican Church could make a non-judgmental, sounding, humble statement. But in fact, like Jude 3, it's changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. Like Jude 8 through 10, it's appallingly judgmental because it's sitting in judgment of God's word. And it's saying that because of our conscience that God's given us, we know better than God himself. So humble is the last thing I would call a statement like that. There is nothing more arrogant than thinking we know better than God when God has spoken so very clearly. But false teachers are everywhere. Well, false teachers also introduce a different position. And the question is, in what position will the message leave you? The true Christian uh, escapes the corruption of this world that's caused by evil desire. Peter, again, would describe the counterfeit Christian in, in 1 Peter 2.19. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. The true believer in escaping corruption while the counterfeit believer is being mastered by it. And false teachers work through a different character, too. Think about the kind of people the message produces. The true believer pursues goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. The counterfeit Christian is marked by arrogance and slander. They're experts in greed, their eyes are full of adultery, and they despise authority, which is the general characteristic of a counterfeit believer. Now, let me pull briefly into a rest stop, okay, from, from the way we've been driving. Uh, if you're still weighing up what you think of the Christian message, you caught me on a, on a heavy night. Even though this is a reboot of the book of Jude, this is an in-house part of the Bible, okay, about serious problems in the church. So let me say this. What's at stake here is the central Christian message. And the central Christian message basically starts like this. It says, all of us by nature have rebelled against God. We've said to God, I, I don't want you in my life. I want to run it myself my own way. And we all deserve God's judgment for that. But God doesn't want it to come to that for any of us. He wants us to be forgiven and, and change sides and come back to him and let his son, Jesus, uh, have his rightful place in our lives as our king. That's why he sent Jesus to become a man, to die on the cross in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve so we could be forgiven. 
And that's what this word grace means. Grace, it's God's undeserved love to people who turn their backs on him. Love that has costly forgiveness at the heart of it. In fact, you've probably seen it before. You could use the word grace for God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. So the central Christian message is about this offer from God to all of us to stop living our own way, to be forgiven, to start life all over again with Him in His rightful place as God. So God will accept any of us just as we are. We don't have to try to make ourselves acceptable to God. In fact, we can't. We do have to humble ourselves and ask forgiveness. But the point of forgiveness in any relationship, it's not so the forgiven person can go on offending the other person, presuming on more forgiveness being there. The point of forgiveness is to give us a fresh start in which we try to treat the other person the right way. We stop offending the person who forgave us. And so it is with God. He doesn't offer His grace, His love with costly forgiveness at the heart of it so that we can just go on rebelling against Him without guilt. According to Jude 3, that's to change the grace of God into a license for immorality. God offers His grace to draw us into a relationship with Him where we will change, albeit imperfectly, but we will be changed to please Him. And if we're sinning sexually, heterosexually or homosexually, we need to change with His help. So yes, God accepts us just as we are when we first become believers and thereafter. But He never leaves us just as we are. He doesn't affirm any of us just as we are. At the same time, He's working on us to change us to be more pleasing to Him. So if you're still thinking about the Christian faith on the outside looking in, That's the central message you need to hear. Are you willing to admit you've turned your back on God and offended Him grossly? Do you yet believe that Jesus died on the cross so that you could be forgiven? Are you willing to humble yourself and ask God to forgive you and then to have Him as the King of your life, allowing Him to change you? Now let's go ahead and pull back out of this rest stop and back on to to the interstate. What's the main application of the first point if we're already Christians? It's this. Uh, We must use the Bible to judge the teachers and the teaching that we're listening to. Jude has written to the whole church, not just to a few church leaders. So if you're a Christian, you're responsible for judging the teaching and lifestyle of the teachers you hear by comparing them with the ultimate measure of God's Word. That's Jude's method. Verses 5 through 7, this is what the Bible says. Verses 8 through 10, now let's judge these teachers by that. That's why we we teach through passages of the Bible like this at the Springfield Church of Christ. That's why we have Bibles in the office to give to newly baptized believers or to people who don't have a Bible. That's why we encourage people to follow in the Bible, to take notes in their bulletin, to think critically whether this person is actually saying what the Bible says and applying it properly. That's why it alarms me sometimes when I see people not doing that Sunday by Sunday. Because if we don't do that, we're going to be easy prey for false teaching. That's the first thing. 
We know what God's judgment on these teachers really is. The second thing is, we know what harm these teachers are really doing. And you'll see this in verses 11 through 16 uh, of Jude. But I also want you to mark the false teachers. Another way you can spot them is they have a different end. Um, you know, asking where does their message lead you or where will any message ultimately lead you? And I think this is the most disturbing contrast of all. The true believer will receive a rich man's welcome into the eternal kingdom uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not a rich man or a woman, excuse me, just a rich welcome. Uh, the false believer will experience swift destruction. Their condemnation has been hanging over them. Their destruction has not been sleeping. Jesus tells us there are going to be many that have been involved in ministry in his name. And to them, he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew 7, 21. So who are those people? One of the reasons we don't fight sometimes is we're not sure we're right. The other is we're not sure it's worth it. And partly that's Americana. I, I get that. Uh, we have a tendency to be apathetic. We want to lead a quiet life. Uh, we find fighting distasteful, uh, a little barbaric, but badly uh, so because partly it's, it's a slightly better reason of regarding fighting in the church as a bad thing. It seems bad for unity and bad for our witness. Uh, how many times have non-Christians said to you, that I, I don't want to go to the church, it looks worse than the world. You know, it looks just as divided as the world. Uh, if you get your own house in order, maybe I will. But Jude says the worst possible thing is not fighting false teachers. But what harm these teachers really can do, which is exactly what Jesus said. I want you to hear what he said in Matthew 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Wow. And uh, in verse 11 and forward, Jude is only saying what the Lord Jesus said that these false teachers are, are bound for and are leading people to hell. Three more Old Testament examples. The first one's in verse 11, uh, or, or the first one's all three. Uh, Woe to them, they've taken the way of Cain, they've rushed for profit into Balaam's heir, and they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So there's three more examples from the Old Testament. Cain, of course, is in Genesis 4. He's the first murderer in the human race. And in Jewish thought, he was regarded as the leader into sin. Uh, his committing murder led to the whole history of murder and violence in the world. Balaam, you can find him in Numbers 22 through 31. Uh, and to cut a long story short, it's a great account. You need to go back and read it. But his influence led to mass sexual immorality among the Israelites and the death of 24,000 of them under God's judgment. Korah, in his rebellion, is in number 16. He rebelled against the leadership of Moses, and he, he didn't see why Moses' word should be accepted any more as authoritative as the word of God than anybody else's word. And he led other people into rebellion, which ended in the death of, I think, of about 250 under God's judgment. But in each of those cases, an individual 
led others into rebellion against God and therefore into God's judgment. The point is, false teachers aren't harmless. They don't do their stuff in a vacuum. They influence people. They destroy people. Uh, verse 12, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever and ever. Blemishes in verse 12 is a word that literally is translated as rocks or reefs. It's a picture of being at sea in a boat and facing the threat of shipwreck. False teachers are like those rocks or reefs. And next, they're like shepherds. They don't care about you. They don't, they don't care about the harm you might come to in this life, let alone the next life, by following them. And then they're like clouds without rain and trees without fruit. In other words, they're useless. But verse 13 tells us that they're worse than useless. They're like a heavy sea that throws up a load of filth on a nice clean beach. And they're like a wandering star or a planet. Uh, we still navigate by the stars. People aboard ships are still taught to use acceptance and how to travel by the stars. But if you confuse a fixed star with a moving planet, it can lead you to your death. And the point is very simple. What do you do about rocks and reefs if you're in a, a, a ship at sea? You avoid them. What do you do with a fruitless tree on your property? You get rid of it. What do you do with a polluted beach? You go somewhere else. What do you do with a wandering star? Don't follow it. So what should you do with fa false teachers? The answer is D, all of the above, right? <laughs> exactly the same. So how does that a point apply to us? Well, if you're careful, uh, you will avoid churches or radio programs or videos, especially through the quarantine, because I know there's a lot of teaching out there. Um, but you will avoid ones with false teachers. Don't tolerate a church where a Bible is not submitted to as God's supreme word and ultimate authority for belief and behavior. Don't be lazy and settle for a church just because it's close to your house when it's teaching falsely. Many people, their lives and families have been ruined that way by a misguided loyalty to the nearest local church or to the denomination that they were brought up in. And here at the Springfield Church of Christ, we've had to fight Springfield's false teaching and many of the area churches' stance on different subjects. God's lines have to be drawn. Even when the false teachers say, well, you're just being judgmental or you're separating from the wider church. When in reality, it's they that are being judgmental of God's word. And it's they that are separating from the truth and therefore from the real church. Another application can arise from the illustration of the trees in verse 12. Uh, fruitless trees shouldn't have uh, fertilizer expended on them. Which is why we, we don't pay a large sum of money into a headquarters or to a board. Uh, there is no biblical example that we can find for our regional headquarters and so on. And, and so we don't feel we should be fertilizing the very false teaching we're called to fight. And another application is this. Although much of the contend, uh, contending recently has fallen to preachers and ministers on our behalf, 
please remember again, Jude is written to the whole church. We're all involved, uh, as you'll know, if your friends criticize you for belonging to that church. Lastly, two details from verses 14 through 16. Uh, Enoch, uh, Jude will write, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in the ungodly way. And all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for their own advantage. Now one, one detail to me in that verse comes in verse 15. And that the Lord will convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in ungodly ways. And all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So God will not only condemn false teachers who lead people into sin by their immorality. He'll condemn false teachers who lead people into sin by their words, by the things they've taught, which they have either criticized or gone against the Bible in regards to. The other detail is in verse 16, where these men flatter others for their own advantage. Literally, they are partial to what people want to hear for their own advantage. Now that, that just takes me right back to 2 Timothy 4.3. Uh, the telltale sign of false teaching is it tells people what their sinful natures want to hear. It's all positive. It's all affirmation. But you can only define the truth by saying what's not true. You can't only define what's right by saying what's wrong. And, and that's what God does throughout the Bible. Beware of any teaching or ministry where it's always positive, where it's always affirmation or always that you feel comfortable, where there's no danger of that to you. Now, I'll guarantee you that if you honestly look at the Word of God, you will not always feel affirmed. You always will end up feeling blessed and in the right with God if you let God tell you the truth about you. If you let God call sin, sin, and not put a positive spin on it. Because, friend, it's the very things that a false teacher tries to put in an acceptable, tolerable light that cost Jesus his life on a cross at Calvary. He died, and it is too much of a gift to sweep something under the rug by not calling sin, sin. And God loves us enough. He doesn't allow us to be led astray that way. Well, next week, we're going to see the positive part of Jude. And by now, you're taking a breath saying, thank goodness, Bill. <laughs> we're going to talk about how we grow as Christians so that we don't fall for false teaching. But for, for this week, I think that that's sufficient enough to talk about these false teachers. And, and Jude says, fight. Uh, are, are we right to fight people who reject the authority of the Bible and encourage immorality? Absolutely. Because we know that God's already given his judgment on these teachers. It's in the Bible. And then is it worth the fight? Jude says, yes. Because we know what harm these teachers are actually doing. And regrettable as it is, fighting for the faith in the church is necessary. Because fighting isn't the worst possible scenario. The worst possible scenario is people being deceived into hell. And God has gifted us with the truth of his word, 
with the passion of his Holy Spirit working in us to lead people from darkness into light, to shine out like stars in the universe as we hold forth the word of truth. Well, God bless each of you, and I hope that you are in his word and praying, and I hope to join you together online Sunday for our worship services then. But until then, God bless you.